And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. DirecTV gives you access to apps like Netflix and live sports right next to each other. I don't get it. Let me put it in pigeon terms. It's like that one amazing dumpster with the old fruits and cardboard all in one place. How am I supposed to keep up with illustrative metaphors when you are making me so hungry? Get live TV and streaming apps together without a satellite. Visit directtv.com. Requires high-speed internet-connected Gemini device and separate paid subscription to watch Netflix on DirecTV. Terms and restrictions apply. Welcome to the Total Soccer Show. My name is Taylor Rockwell, and with me today is a man who always rises to the occasion. He's got tactical knowledge baked into his DNA, and he's ready to get this bread. It's Joe Lowry. Hello, Joe. <laughs> Hello, Taylor. That was truly phenomenal. Wow. Thank you, my friend. Oh, Thank you. My word. I'm going to get three in there right away. <laughs> You really yeah, did. I, mean, I know you've been, I'm assuming you've been watching some soccer. I know you've been doing some baking. Uh, what are your, what's the latest in your aspirations to be the next Paul Hollywood? Yeah, so I tweeted out yesterday evening, it was pretty late, that I was baking bread and I was going to give an update on today's show. And I'm glad you saw that because I just had bread all caps and in bold with three question marks at the top of my <laughs> rundown um, to remind myself to give an update about said experience and an overall Taylor. If, if, go ahead. I was just going to say, Joe, I just want you to know that uh, I interviewed Carl Anka earlier today. That show will be out later on in the week. In my notes for Carl, I did write down Joe equals bread and circled it four <laughs> times because I didn't want to forget that. So I'm glad that we both wanted to make sure to remember to talk about bread today. Yeah, I guess this is the uh, this is not my joke. This is the total baking show now. Uh, I think that's where we're at at this yes. point. But my my bread <laughs> baking experience was vastly improved from last week. I think we talked about it last Tuesday. So this is mm-hmm. exactly a week a week from our last conversation, the bread stayed together. It actually right. tasted good. Taylor, I think we're moving in the right direction. <laughs> moving in the right direction. Are you going like instant yeast? Are you going starter? What, what, what are you doing here, Joe? So I'm not, at, I'm not at starter level yet. I would like to mm-hmm. get to that point. But for now, we're just in the basics. Starters seem kind of scary to me. Not because yep. I'm afraid of, of their taste or anything like that. I've eaten bread that's made from a starter. Just the process of starting a starter and maintaining mm-hmm. one seems very daunting. Maybe I'll get over that fear at some point, but for now, we're just rocking with the basics. I appreciated that I had this conversation with, with Jeff last week about how to maintain the starter, and his response was like, just have a partner who's a chemist. And it's like, oh yeah, that's 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 easy, Jeff. Let's just make that happen yep. really, really yep. easily. I should note, we're not talking about soccer today. It's going to be all bread. We're going to talk our favorite breads, our favorite ways of making bread. That sounds like the most boring podcast, and yet I feel like also... Would probably be soothing at the same time, but we're not going to do that. We're going to talk about Americans abroad, including an American soon to be abroad. That's where we're going to start. We are going to do our usual look back at some Americans who were in action, one who was not in action. We'll talk about that as well. Uh, but first, I want to talk Jordan Morris, who is expected to complete a loan, move to Swansea City sometime during the January window. Joe, first off, I was surprised when this move was first reported because I sort of assumed he was going to be an MLS lifer. Did you think this was unexpected, or are you not as surprised as I was? It's funny. I kind of asked Jordan Angeli the exact same question yesterday on MLS Assess, right. just wondering, you know, did people see this coming? Yes, there had been reports. The Athletic had reported that teams in Europe were interested in in making a move for Jordan Morris. And so that part wasn't surprising to me. 
But I'd always still suppressed that belief. I'd always thought Jordan Morris was going to be a Seattle Sounder for the rest of his career. And it seems like at this point that I was wrong, and that's not going to be the case. It looks like this move is going to happen. It's pretty much all but official at this point. And, and weirdly, even though my initial reaction when I saw Swansea City and I saw the English Championship was not entirely positive after thinking about yeah. it for a little bit, I'm feeling like this is actually a really good move for Jordan Morris. I, I agree with you. And, and I want to start there with the kind of like why Swansea City, because I was a little bit confused by that as well. One thing that helped clarify things a bit, uh, Manuel Vates, who's been on the show before, obviously the Bundesliga expert, uh, basically mentioned that like he had kind of burned bridges in Germany. And I, and I messaged him to ask about that because players turn down clubs all the time. Players go on trial and it doesn't work out for whatever reason. I, I don't think like I think some of that like they're holding a grudge he didn't go there he wanted to be with his dog or whatever I do think that's a little bit overblown I asked Manuel about that and he basically agreed that like it's not that big of a deal that he turned down uh Werder Bremen way back when um that maybe it means that they're not as interested but they weren't really one of the clubs that was rumored he did say that the two that are consistently linked of Wolfsburg and Bayer Leverkusen doesn't seem like there was actually much interest there so I don't know if that was just meant to drum up sort of some uh some stories about Jordan Morris or what have you but Manuel's point uh, which I don't believe he minded me repeating here, and if he did, then apologies to Manuel. Pretty sure he didn't, <laughs> though. Was essentially that Bundesliga clubs are looking to MLS, to the United States, for younger players who aren't fully developed yet and can still be sort of molded into what those clubs want them to be. They don't really want the finished product because it means you are going to have to spend more money. It also means that you're not going to be able to shape them quite the way you might want to. So if you're bringing in a right back who's 18, maybe they're going to be a right back, maybe they're going to be a right winger, maybe they're going to be something else. But if you're bringing in a 26-year-old right back, you sort of know what they're going to be. And I think that's the case with Jordan Morris. But then we look at Swansea, and I think it does make a little bit more sense because I think he is going to get uh, more—he's more likely to get consistent playing time than going to a Bundesliga club in the middle of their season. And I think there's also a chance we see him in the Premier League at some point if they continue the run of form they're on. So I, I, I'm with you, Joe. I've kind of come around to the idea of being it's of it being Swansea and not a Bundesliga club. But are there other reasons why you're uh, you're in favor of this one? I'm also in favor. I, I agree with the points you just made. And to add to the list of reasons why I think this is a good loan move, this is kind of a, a win-win situation for Jordan Morris and for the Seattle Sounders. If you think about where Jordan Morris is in his career right now, now he's thinking about going and actually playing in Europe for a longer period of time, for longer than this loan with Swansea. And that means he's not probably going to be a Swansea player for the rest of his career. This is a chance for him to go to a league in Europe that a lot of teams in top five leagues scout and are familiar with and know the level of and are confident in acquiring players from. And yeah, even though Swansea City wouldn't be the, the team that Morris would be moving directly from to his next stop in Europe, I'm confident that if he plays well for Swansea in the championship and goes back to Seattle after his loan ends, his price tag might be boosted, which which is the win for Seattle, right? Getting more money for a player off of a six-month loan or whatever it's going to be with Swansea, that has value. And then at that point for Jordan Morris, you've you've trampolined off of a, a short swing, 
a short stint, excuse me, in the championship mm-hmm. and moved up a level. And maybe those Bundesliga teams are interested in you now. Maybe yeah. Premier League teams at a higher level than Swansea, who would be promoted from the championship if the season ended today. Maybe a 10th place English Premier League team is in for you. I mean, I think there's nothing but benefit for Jordan Morris if he plays well at Swansea. And even if he doesn't, he can go back to Seattle and, and kind of live happily ever after. Well, let's talk about that if when it comes to Swansea, because from my reading, I have not been doing a lot of Swansea viewing. I don't know how much you have done, Joe, but from my reading, they tend to go with a 3-5-2. Jordan Morris tending to play out on the wing for Seattle, either on the left or the right. Obviously has played forward at times, can play forward or center forward, but seems to want to be out wide. So how do you see him fitting in with this Swansea team? I've read and seen that Swansea play a 3-5-2 under manager Steve Cooper. So that is that is true. We're on the same page with okay. that one. And for Jordan Morris, then you're looking at him playing not on the left wing like he does with Seattle, but you're looking at him playing in one of those two number nine spots. With Swansea playing with two forwards, Jordan Morris can fit into that rotation. He can fit into one of those two spots. Right now, Steve Cooper uses Andre Ayu as the mm-hmm. the number nine who drops in and drops into midfield and gets the ball played to his feet. And then it's Jamal Lowe who typically plays higher and makes runs in behind the back line and pins those center backs back to stretch the defense. I think, Taylor, I think Jordan Morris can do both of those things. I think he can drop in like Ayu. I think he can stretch the back line like Lowe. And that makes him even more valuable to Steve Cooper because Jordan Morris is so versatile with his positioning. He can play on the left. He can play on the right. He can do either one of those jobs as a number nine or or in a two striker front. He can totally fit in this rotation of strikers in that 3-5-2. So if you look at those two roles, there's like the dropping in, linking up, facilitating possession, and then there's the stretching the line, running at defenders, uh, making them a little bit nervous. Uh, I agree with you. I think he can do both of those things. But I am curious which of those things you think, like which of those roles is better for him right now in terms of which one do you think he can do just a little bit more easily and which one of them do you think is better for him in terms of developing his overall game? I think I think I've got different answers to those questions. I think most easily Jordan Morris could come in and do the Jamal Lowe breaking in behind the back line, mm-hmm. staying high role. Because man, from the start of his career, if we think back to Stanford and then into his early Seattle days, Jordan Morris was about speed, and he still is about speed. He's 26 now. He's a bigger guy than he's been before, but he is so fast, and he is able to break in behind opposing back lines and get on the ball in that space behind the back line and drive at goal. I think that's his, if not his best thing, certainly one of his best things. But if we're looking at how he develops on the field and improving his game even now in his mid-20s, I think that Andre Ayu role of dropping in a little bit more, having to adjust and learn how to play off of his central midfield teammates at Swansea. I think all of those things have value and would add another dimension to his game if we're thinking about the national team. Maybe Jordan Morris then, instead of always being a line-breaking forward, could be more of a of a numerical advantage forward, where he drops into midfield and combines with those three center mids for the U.S. national team and adds another dimension there. So I think I think it's two sides of the coin. I think right now he fits as the Jamal Lowe breaking in behind guy, but he could improve his game maybe a little bit more by playing in the Andre Ayu role. 
All right, you've you've got me you've got me feeling optimistic about this move. I think just because when you have a player who sort of does the same thing, they get moved to another club where they're doing the same thing. Like that's good, and then it gives them that consistency, but it doesn't mean that they're going to develop those necessary skill sets. So not obviously not drawing a direct parallel, but I think of say the evolution of Cristiano Ronaldo going from that like like wide midfielder to a winger to a wide attacker to now like the central striker for Juve at times, and there's an evolution to the game that's necessary to because like opponents can start to kind of read you and know exactly what you're going to do but also as you get older you lose some of the pace you lose some of the physicality but you can adjust what you're doing and I think again it's why this move makes a lot of sense to me it puts Jordan Morris in a different situation but not a completely oh he's going to AC Milan now will he be able to do anything will he get any minutes it's not that sort of situation it's can he develop in a new system and learn some new things I think we've seen from him in the past that he is very capable of learning how to do new things and adjusting his game as is necessary. So I, I find myself strangely way more optimistic than I was when I first saw this reported, not even to say that I was negative then, just a bit more confused. And now it makes a lot of sense in a lot of different ways for me. The only thing that I have left to add kind of on this discussion, other than I do think to reiterate, I think it's a win-win for for Jordan Morris and for the Seattle Sanders. And I guess let's add another win on there and add Swansea City in there as well. But I read a story on The Athletic by Stuart James, who wrote that Steve Cooper, Swansea City manager, has already had a phone call with Greg Berhalter about Cooper plan about how he's planning to use, how Cooper is planning to use Jordan Morris at Swansea. And so I'm thinking we could even add a fourth win there. And if Berhalter and Cooper are on the same page and they have similar yeah. objectives and targets for Morris to hit, the national team could benefit from this move as well. Uh, so win, win, win. Is that what we're saying? It's a triple win. I think we're at quadruple win at this point. Okay. All right. Let's add a quintuple. Why not? Let's just add one more. Yeah. Uh, so, okay. I feel like we're, we're pretty positive on Jordan Morris. That's a good start. Some of the players we're going to talk about are a little bit maybe more negative, some more positive. Joe, I think we're going to end up talking about four or uh, eight or so Americans who played or didn't play this past weekend. Where should we begin? Who should we talk about first? Do you want to go first or would you like me to go first? I feel like I've talked plenty. Why don't okay. you go first? Okay, I'll go first then with a very positive development, I think, and that's Brendan Aronson. Starting, scoring, mm -hmm. and having an assist for RB Salzburg in a friendly against second division club. Here comes the pronunciation. SK Forwards yep. Steyr. We'll see how that goes. Mm -hmm. I, I'm open to criticism on that pronunciation. But the Austrian Bundesliga has been on break over the holiday season and into early January. And so now, now RB Salzburg, where Brendan Aronson is playing under Jesse Marsh, they played a, a friendly over the weekend to get games before the Austrian Bundesliga comes back in full force this upcoming weekend. And, and Salzburg won this game by a lot. They, they won six to nothing and it was not close in really any facet of the game. But I think it was still significant because this is the first time, Taylor, we got to see Brendan Aronson play in an RB Salzburg jersey. Yeah, and, and it was very exciting to me, uh, as we talked about on Weekend Review, I think. It was kind of strange, because uh, I didn't know it was a friendly when I first started watching it, to look at it and be like, is this where they play their league games? Because this seems like not <laughs> a stadium. Uh, it seems more like an open field. Uh, so yes, the friendly then made a lot more sense. But it was interesting. It was exciting for me to watch him uh, do things, score a goal, but also handle the physicality. It's not a thing I was expecting in a friendly, that he was getting knocked around. There was definitely some challenges. There were definitely 
definitely some like poke tackles from behind where they got a little little bit of the ball and a lot of him. But I never saw him getting really angry. I never saw it throwing him off his game. If anything, it just made him work that much harder. Uh, so I, I thought it was a, a very positive debut. And we've seen Americans get their debuts in club friendlies in the winter. Uh, that's where Pulisic, I think, first started. Even Reyna, I think, getting his first minutes. Obviously, that's with German Bundesliga clubs. But still, uh, scoring a goal on your debut and getting involved, uh, nothing to dismiss for sure. That's a good thing, right? And even though the quality of the opponent in this game wasn't high, I think we learned a few things about Salzburg, but more specifically about Brendan Aronson and how Jesse Marsh is going to use him. So for me, that's my biggest takeaway from this game. I'll have a specific moment in just a moment that I want to talk about. But Brendan Aronson in this game, I believe, camera angle aside, it was it was difficult to see exactly, but I believe <laughs> Brendan Aronson was playing as the left attacking midfielder in a 4 4-2-2-2-2. 4-2-2-2. That's the one. Man, that yep. is tricky. I know you and Ryan and Graham talk about that all the time. I came in confident, and man, my confidence is now completely shaken. Banana-nana, man. Banana-nana. Banana-nana-nana-nana. He's playing as that left-sided attacking midfielder in a 4 triple 2 And that, it seems, is one of the primary positions that Jesse Marsh wants him to play in. Aronson starts this game in that spot and then switches in the second half over to the right-sided attacking midfielder in that 4 triple 2 formation. And I was watching a video on RB Salzburg's YouTube channel that Brendan Aronson conducted with with someone at the club right after he joined or or right before this game happened, a few days before this game happened. Mm -hmm. And Aronson said that Marsh is preparing him to play in either of those central attacking midfield roles in that shape that Salzburg played over the weekend, or he's prepared to play as a center attacking midfielder in a 4-4-2 diamond, or as one of those eights on the side of the diamond. So for me, my my real focus in this game was seeing how Aronson did as that attacking midfielder, because that's or as one of the attacking midfielders, I should say, because that's the role or one of the roles that Jesse Marsh is watching for and looking to play Aronson in at Salzburg. And Taylor, I thought he looked really dangerous in that spot. I thought he, I thought he looked really good on both sides of the ball. And I'm encouraged about what Brendan Aronson could bring at that spot, a spot that's different from where he played at the Union, but a spot where I think he can be really effective for Salzburg. See, this is one of these situations in which Joe brings obvious logical context that I had not even considered. Because I was just watching his highlights and and thinking, like, oh, yeah, that was good. Oh, yeah, that was good, too. Didn't occur to me to really look at it from the view of how will he be developing within this team and what does he bring to the team. And thinking of it that way, it's why I say make the oh noise. Because I realize, like, no, yeah, like he does a lot of things in this game that you would definitely want the person who's occupying that spot, be it as the left or right attacking midfielder in that 4-2-2-2. Uh, and yeah, I, I suddenly am even more positive about it because it's like, oh, yeah, I know. That's what you would want there. Yep, that's what I saw Subasloy doing before he was moved on. So, yeah, Brandon Aronson can just come in and do that. Let's make it happen. And he did a lot of those things that you want from from your attacking midfielders in that shape. In the first half, this is where my specific moment comes into play. RB Salzburg are retreating back into somewhat of a flat 4-4-2 block. The 4 triple 2 kind of flattens out, and those attacking midfielders come and defend a little bit wider, making almost a 4-4-2 shape. And so Brendan Aronson in the first half, playing as that left-sided attacking midfielder, drops back to defend the left side of midfield. And as he's shifting back, this is in the 31st minute, as he's shifting back, the ball comes into his area, and Aronson turns, intercepts the pass, and immediately turns and dribbles forward. So then at this point, after he's intercepted the ball and moved forward, he's in some space and he cuts in on his right dominant foot. So he is right-footed. So he's cutting in onto his strong foot across the face of a defender 
who then has to foul him to stop the Salzburg attack. If you watch the clip, it's a really simple, almost routine kind of play. But I love this play because it gives us a look at Aronson's defensive work. It gives us a look at how efficient he is with his movement, moving from defense to attack, which is so important for a Red Bull team. And it also shows us how dangerous he can be cutting in from a wide area and into a central area, from the left wing into the middle of the field on his right foot. That might be my favorite Brendan Aronson attribute. And and couple that with his defensive work and with his efficient movement. And this play has a lot of value. Let's just have him do that in a stadium during a league <laughs> game, and then I'll be even more excited from a normal Agreed. camera angle. Agreed. No doubt. I think Perfect. It, it's hard because this is a friendly and we don't want to put too much stock into it. But those little actions and, and his positioning as a left attacking midfielder and then the right attacking midfielder, I think those are things we can legitimately take away from this game. But I, I do not want to take too much more out of it than that. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. All right. All right. Well, we will not take too much more out of it than that. We still have many players to be discussed. But first, let's take a moment to talk about today's sponsor. This episode of the Total Soccer Show is brought to you by 1010. You may have read about this in the New York Times, in Style Magazine or Forbes. I wasn't sure if that was four different publications or three. It was three. Uh, (laughs) We're excited to tell you about it. 1010 is an exclusive collection of 10 one-of-a-kind engagement rings designed by 10 of the most distinctive designers working today. Using only diamonds responsibly sourced from Botswana, 10 design masters have each produced a uniquely beautiful commitment ring. They're available now exclusively at BlueNile.com, and when they're gone, they're gone. They are gone. We all know that the diamond engagement ring is iconic. It is a timeless expression of the deepest commitment between two people. And with 1010, it's been beautifully re-envisioned in the hands of 10 modern designers working exclusively with sustainably sourced diamonds. If you're ready to mark a special commitment or looking for a unique and meaningful way to celebrate Valentine's Day, you're definitely going to want to check this out. Again, this exciting limited edition collection of diamond engagement rings is now available exclusively at BlueNile.com. One more time, that's BlueNile.com to check out everything on offer. Thank you very much to 1010 for sponsoring today's episode. Today's episode is brought to you by our old friends, Mac Weldon. Wouldn't it be nice if we could have things both ways, like a zero-calorie cheeseburger, internet ads in March that weren't just reminders to do your taxes, a dog that never needs walking after midnight when it's cold, a Manchester United that is consistently good instead of their current scattershot approach, Well, we tend to think of clothing as an either-or situation as well. People think looking sharp means starchy Oxfords and stiff chinos rather than effortless comfort. But it's possible to have it both ways. Mack Weldon makes timeless apparel with modern performance fabrics for guys who want to look and feel sharp without sacrificing comfort. From their light-as-air underwear to innovative anti-odor tees and versatile yet comfortable pants, Mack Weldon has a full range of clothes that never go out of style. I got a few things recently, including a long-sleeve polo, which I love, uh, maybe the most comfortable t-shirt, which I also love, and my new favorite sweatpants, the Ace sweatpant. It's exactly what I described above, comfort and versatile, but still stylish. It's the type of sweatpant I can wear to pick up my kids from daycare and not think, I'm now wearing sweatpants in public. The other parents will judge me. Now I just think, judge away, nerds, because you will never be this comfortable unless you're also wearing a pair, in which case, high five. Mack Weldon is not flashy. It's just classic, always in style, and made from the world's most comfortable performance materials. They're designed to fit both your style and the demands of modern life. 
So get timeless looks with modern comfort from Mack Weldon. Go to MacWeldon.com and get 20% off your first order with promo code TSS. That's M-A-C-K-W-E-L-D-O-N.com, promo code TSS to get 20% off your first order. Thank you to Mack Weldon for sponsoring today's episode. Thank you very much to Four Sigmatic for sponsoring today's episode. Uh, Joe, let's talk about Four Sigmatic for a moment because for people who might not be aware or be as familiar, it might sound a little strange up front because we're talking about mushroom coffee. Uh, delicious mushroom coffee is worth noting there, but it's not quite as odd as it might sound because we're not talking about, I don't know, like a floating toadstool in a, <laughs> in a like, cup of hot water. There's more to it than that. Oh, there's much more to it than that. First of all, benefits-wise. Four Sigmatic is fair trade. It's single origin Arabica coffee with lion's mane mushroom for productivity and chaga mushrooms for immune support. So not only are you getting delicious coffee that tastes like coffee, but you're also getting all of those benefits that come from those different kinds of mushrooms. It's great. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and I will say I am the type to like, especially these days in the COVID era when it's easy to kind of stay at home and stay in the bubble. Oh, you're supposed to, but it's also then like, like I, I find it hard to kind of get going sometimes. So really anything that has uh, increased productivity and immunity, I, I, I'm in. And so that already has me on board. But then you've got the other aspects of it, like the fact that they are organic, vegan, gluten free. Every single batch is third party lab tested to ensure its purity and safety. So, you know, you're getting the highest quality coffee and mushrooms possible. But Joe, the question then becomes, does it taste like mushrooms? You'd think so, right? You would sincerely think so, but it doesn't. I can guarantee it tastes just like the coffee you love. It brews dark and nutty and tastes incredible. And you don't have to take my word for it. Four Sigmatic has over 20,000 five-star reviews. And best of all, Four Sigmatic backs their products with a 100% money-back guarantee. Love every sip or you get your money back. That'll work. That'll work. We've worked out an exclusive offer with Four Sigmatic on their best-selling mushroom coffee, uh, but this is just for Total Soccer Show listeners. Get up to 40% off and free shipping on mushroom coffee bundles. To claim this deal, you must go to foursigmatic.com slash TSS. Uh, this offer is only for Total Soccer Show listeners and is not available on their regular website. You'll save up to 40% and get free shipping, so go right now to foursigmatic.com slash TSS. I'm going to spell it. Get ready, everybody. F-O-U-R-S-I-G-M-A-T-I-C dot com slash T-S-S and fuel your productivity and creativity with some delicious mushroom coffee. Thank you very much to Four Sigmatic for sponsoring today's episode. All right, Joe, let's talk about, uh, I've referenced it like three times now, so we may as well get to it. A player who did not play this weekend, but I am still going to talk about, is Dwayne Octavius Holmes, 26-year-old central midfielder uh, for Derby County for now. He's out of contract at the end of the season. He's been linked with a move back to Huddersfield Town, uh, and his new permanent manager, Wayne Rooney, was asked about why Holmes has not been playing. Uh, he did not give the, you know, every game is its own thing thing. We've got to figure out what works for us on the day. It wasn't injury related. Uh, Wayne Rooney responded, it was for footballing reasons why he has not been in the squad in the last two games. He knows he needs to train better. He needs to perform better in training and give me an option to see if I use him or not. So that is on him to do that. End quote. That's a pretty direct summary of how Wayne Rooney is feeling about Dwayne Holmes. Um, From the fan comments I was able to find from a few different articles, the comment section is not always the best indicator of things, but the kind of consensus 
point on Dwayne Holmes. I want to emphasize that I have not watched enough Darby County. And even if I had, I wouldn't be watching Dwayne Holmes. So I should say I haven't been watching the training sessions. <laughs> but it sounds like his rep is is a little bit that if things don't go his way or if those first 10 minutes to a game aren't solid, you sort of can bet on it being an underwhelming performance from Dwayne Holmes. That's been the knock on him at least this season, that in those first 10 minutes, if he's kind of looking electric, he's looking alive, he's stringing passes together, he's moving, he's creating in those first 10 minutes, it stands to reason that will continue. But by all accounts, if in those first 10 minutes he's not quite up to the races yet, he's maybe a little bit slow to react or a ball goes under his foot and out of bounds, that kind of becomes indicative of the way he's going to play that game. So if you extrapolate from there, it's safe to assume that maybe that's an element of training as well, that if he gets his head down or if he's just not feeling it, and also if you're not playing, you're not going to have the most confidence. And I can see how those things combined would make a new manager who has a lot on the line not necessarily want to trust a player who might not be up for it from the start. That's, again, based on a lot of what I read, so I don't want to say that's definitely the case or Dwayne Holmes has energy issues or enthusiasm issues or anything like that, but for people who are wondering what the issue might be, that is at least one possible answer. I'm following along with your line of reasoning, but I'm also still stuck mm-hmm. back on that Wayne Rooney quote. What a, what a quote, yeah. right? He's coming in, he hasn't yeah. been the manager of Derby County for very long, or not the, well, either interim or official manager for very long. He's still new at this, yep. and he comes in and lays down the law, not even in a in a seemingly bad way, I think he comes in and very reasonably states the reason why Dwayne Holmes is not playing games. And I, man, I respect that, Taylor. I do too. I, I will be, I, I will say I do as well. I think as a, a fan of the men's national team and a fan of Dwayne Holmes, I think it, it simultaneously bums me out for more than sure. just like, oh, he's not doing great right now. The manager's mad. I think, and I'm not the first to point this out, I think other people have said so on Twitter, that if you see this tweet coming from Wayne Rooney, new manager, you think like, oh, he's just trying to like motivate the player. But if you see it as Wayne Rooney, new manager, who has also been at Derby for a couple years now, it does make you then wonder if this is a thing that annoyed Wayne Rooney in training when he was a player and is now continuing to annoy him as a manager. My guess is just that this isn't a sort of recent thing that has been an issue. Maybe it's a thing that's like they have priors in practice, or maybe there's just a little bit of frustration there that then once he becomes manager, he has the more authority to be able to say like, no, I don't like the way that training is happening. I don't like the, the level of enthusiasm or energy there so it's got to be better and it's a bold state bold stance that said it's not as though he's like benching Ronaldo or Messi or anything like that but to me he is because Dwayne Octavius Holmes could be the next Messi not really that's a bit hyperbolic I'm just imagining in training when Wayne Rooney was still playing for Darby County and and Dwayne Holmes mm-hmm. maybe eased up on on tracking back a couple a couple times too many or maybe yep. maybe didn't run hard enough to get on the end of a Wayne Rooney long diagonal out of midfield and and Wayne Rooney just remembers those moments he holds on to them and now that he's in charge and he makes the makes the moves and calls the shots Dwayne Octavius Holmes might not be in the picture so much longer <laughs> I'm I'm actually I'm really glad you brought that up Joe because um uh Darren Fletcher did a really good like long form interview with Graham Hunter for Graham Hunter's podcast and he talks about what training was like under Selix Ferguson. Uh I think Daryl and I talked about this a few different times but for people who might have missed it it was a while ago. Um it's basically that they would do a lot of 5v2s and there was one like the top level 5v2 that usually had like way back when Roy Keane and Paul Scholes in it and it was sort of like if you're going to be in there if you make your way into that group you better be good and that's the one where I think Rio Ferdinand miscontrols the first pass 
tests and everybody then asks him like, how much were you bought for? Like, are you sure? Are you sure that good? And so I think there is an element to Manchester United's training of if you make a mistake, if you slack off, you're going to hear about it. Everyone's going to know about it. You're going to be moved to a group that's not as competitive. And I do wonder if that bleeds into the way to the way Wayne Rooney approaches training. And if he does have that intensity and that like, no, you've got to go 100% the whole time. If you're not a player who's doing that, I think you're probably going to find out pretty quickly, as has Dwayne Holmes. So we'll see if he turns it around. As I said in the very beginning, lots of rumors linking him with moves back to Huddersfield Town or other championship teams, because again, he is out of contract doesn't seem as though things are going to change, so I felt like it was worth mentioning here. So if we don't see much more from Dwayne Holmes, we will know why. Hopefully that's not the case, but hopefully Joe can take us in a more positive direction with another player to be discussed. My next player, actually, before I get to my next player, I just want to say I'd love to see Dwayne Holmes in Major League Soccer. That's that's all I had to say. I think he'd yeah. be a good, I like a good above average central midfielder in Major League Soccer that could add a lot of value to a number of different teams in the league. I don't think that'll happen. I don't know anything, but I don't think that'll happen. But it would be it would be fun. And I'd like to see that. But moving us on forward to my next player. I'm talking about Matthew Hoppy. He starts again for Schalke. He scores again for Schalke. It, it was in a 3-1 loss this time to Eintracht Frankfurt. Yeah. Uh, the, the high for Schalke did not continue after their, their record breaking in a way, almost record breaking because they almost set the record for, you know, worst stretch of games in the Bundesliga or in Germany. <laughs> um, but it wasn't as good of a performance all around from Schalke. And I would also say it wasn't as good of a performance from Matthew Hoppy overall. And we'll get to that maybe in just a second, but I want to start, start hot, start positive and talk about Hoppy's goal. You and Ryan and Graham talked about it on Monday for the weekend review, but I want to get my take on it a little bit and walk Please. listeners through it in maybe a little bit more detail than, than you guys had time for on Monday. So it's the 29th like minute. Schalke have a throw in on the near side in the attacking half. So they're up in the attack and, and they throw it into Benjamin Stambouli, who plays a chipped ball in behind the back line for Matthew Hoppy to run onto. And at this point, when I'm watching this clip, at first, I don't, I don't notice anything. Hoppy just gets on the end of the ball and scores a goal. He nutmegs the goalkeeper with his shot. And it's a good finish. It's a nice opportunistic finish from Hoppy. But I went back and watched it again a couple more times. And Frankfurt actually have, have a pretty major miscommunication between their center back, who thinks that his goalkeeper is coming out to get the ball that, that Stambouli has played over the top for Hoppy to run onto. The center back thinks the goalkeeper is coming to claim the ball. And the goalkeeper thinks the center back's coming back to track back and deal with that ball in the box. And it's that indecision that gives time for Hoppy to catch up to the ball and, and put his right foot through it and not make the keeper and do all that good stuff to score the goal for Schalke. So it's a good finish for Matthew Hoppy, but I, I am thinking he was definitely a little bit fortunate to have a chance to shoot in the first place. Yeah, I think that's probably fair but you know you got to take the chances you can of course you yeah. can get and when you take them you got to score them and he did that so i'll give him credit for no, that No, I'm, I'm right there with you and so it's it is a positive thing that's four goals in in two games for matthew hoppy in, in back-to-back <laughs> starts and if he continues scoring goals and racking up high quality chances like that one that's that's only a good thing and so that was a positive moment overall i would say from from matthew hoppy in this game i want to talk about a negative moment but before i do that i've got a little bit of, of Matthew Hoppy 101 here from what I've noticed so far uh, of Matthew Hoppy and his time starting up top for Schalke. So in this game against Eintracht Frankfurt, and as far as I can tell, uh, this applies to all the games that Matthew Hoppy has played for Schalke so far. 
in in this game and in those games, Hoppy's most two common types of actions, I think, are trying to head down goal kicks that Schalke play long from goal kicks. So he, he'll have to drop in a little bit and just try to flick the ball on or get on the end of something and settle the ball for Schalke right in that center circle. So that's the most common type of action, number one. And the second most common type of action is him making runs in behind the back line. We saw it a little bit on the goal. And, and we see this all the time. We saw it on all three goals that he scored last week for Schalke when he had that hat trick. And, and I mean, Harit had those wonderful assists. So Hoppy loves to run in behind the back line. And that's his go-to thing, partly because I think he's good at it, but also partly because I don't think he's comfortable dropping in and playing with his back to goal. And that leads me into my more negative, more negative, something to be improved on moment from Matthew Hoppy in this game. Taylor, it's the 27th minute, and it's a rare moment when Schalke actually have the ball settled at the back. They have the ball on their left side, deep in their own half, and they move it forward in towards the middle of the field. Because Schalke are building up with the ball on the ground, that cues Hoppy to actually drop in, to forego his classic breaking in behind run and actually come in and try to help his teammates in the midfield. So that's what he does. Hoppy drops in, gets away from an opposing center back and receives the ball and tries to play a one-touch pass to a teammate on his right. But that teammate was never actually open. Hoppy just succeeded in playing that one-touch pass right to an opponent and turning the ball over for Schalke. And that's that's a microcosm. That's one moment. But I do think it is emblematic of Matthew Hoppy's lack of comfort when he drops into midfield and his lack of composure on the ball, especially compared to other strikers that we do often compare upcoming number nines to in the U.S. men's national team player pool. I would say, like, I still, like, because it's Schalke, I'm always going to have that, like, but is it him or is it Schalke? Because that sequence, there are a couple other, like, miscontrols along the way. And I do keep wondering, like, similar to our conversations about Weston McKinney of the past, of if he has more consistency around him, if the team have a bit better of an idea of what they're trying to do and maybe has a little bit more talent with him. Do they combine better? Is it just a little bit easier of a process? Does he Is he able to slow down a little bit more and not have to try to force so many things as quickly as he can because otherwise the opportunity might go wasting? I, I do still have that like, but is it him or is it Shaka sort of concern? With that said, I, I did when I saw this clip when you initially shared it with me, I thought he was the player who had successfully linked up play and I was like, oh, okay, that was great. That was really good technical work. Not nearly as bad as that guy who missed controlled it and did nothing, (laughs) and then realized that that was actually a Matthew Hoppy, and then I felt a little bit sadder about that. Yeah, he was the second number nine dropping in at the top of Schalke's 4-4-2. Uth drops in first, and then Hoppy drops in behind him, and and I'm with you, Taylor. I think there is always going to be a caveat, or or most of the time, there will be a caveat with some of these mistakes that Hoppy is making. First of all, because he's so young, and because he's still only had a handful of Bundesliga starts, but then add on to that the fact that he's starting for Schalke and how really, really bad they are and have been for a long time now, there is reason to still be patient with Matthew Oppie. And I'm not trying to say that there's not. Yeah. I just want to provide listeners with something to watch for when they watch Matthew Hoppy next week and the week after, hopefully, for Schalke, although they just made a move for another striker or they're, they're reportedly making a move. Yeah. Hassan Huntelaar, yep. right? So he is potentially slash definitely going to come into this group. And so minutes might be harder to come by. But as you go and watch Taylor, and the same goes for me and hopefully for listeners out there too, mm-hmm. as we watch Matthew Hoppy play in the future, watch if if and when he drops in and watch his composure and watch what he does with his back to goal. And and let's see how productive those touches are and see if he can build on on this moment and a couple others that are like it. All right, I like that. We, we should probably start some sort of like 
database of what we're tracking with each player so we can then see how it evolves over the, the ensuing weeks. But I like this idea with Hoppy. Let's keep an eye on if his uh, link at play is dropping in, develops, or if he continues to look like the one that wasn't doing the right job as he did this past weekend. I think we can get a couple different people on U.S. Men's National Team Twitter to volunteer for that job. So I'm hesitant for either one of us to accept it right off the bat. But uh, we will be taking applications, everybody. Okay, I like that. Uh, the U.S. National Team is taking applications for left back, potentially, <laughs> which is where we're going to go to talk about Anthony Robinson. Uh, my basic feeling about Anthony Robinson, I think I like him more than a lot of people who are like, like very into the national team. I think for people who are casually into the national team, they might say, who? Uh, Anthony Robinson is the left back slash left wing back this past weekend, uh, for Fulham. Uh, and the question remains like, is he good enough? Is he consistent enough? Because he'll have those moments when he looks very good, especially when it comes to the attack. Then he'll have those moments for the national team when he does not look good, either in attack or defense. And this game was essentially, in my mind, a very good showcase of what he brings in both senses. He gets the red card. Uh, we can talk about that. But that's not even the negative one I want to start with. What I want to start with, Joe, is a clip I sent to you in which he's uh, a little bit isolated out on the left-hand side. Uh, as I said, he's in the left wing back position. But he's trying to split the difference between uh, like an opponent who has the ball and opponent a little bit more interior waiting for the wall pass. And it's to me, it's pretty clear like that's what teams go for. They want that sort of quick combination. Ball goes central. The defender goes towards that player. And then it's a wall pass down the line and the attackers are in. And that is exactly what happens, except that Anthony Robinson doesn't really do either thing here. He instead tries to, I think, like split the difference and go for the interception, but does so about a second too late. So that by the time he's trying to close, the pass has been made and received and the player has turned. And now instead of a like a chance for a wall pass down the line, it's essentially a 2v0 down that line. And that's that moment with Robinson when he maybe gambles a little bit or just tries too much or trusts his athleticism too much and doesn't make the smart defensive play. Even staying back and waiting for that pass to go central and then committing one way or the other, I think is a fine option there. But what I don't want to see is him sort of get completely exposed because he gambles and loses. That was my take on this clip, Joe. I know you've had a chance to look at it. What did you make of that one? I think Anthony Robinson is just too eager. He comes in too hard. Yeah, and, that's yes. Yeah, and I agree. It's unnecessary. He's dealing with two Chelsea players on that side, and he has a little bit of help from from an attacker also helping him on that left side of defense for Fulham. But he he steps in, honestly, when I'm not sure he needs to step in. I think he'd be better yeah. served dropping a little bit. And I I'm not sure if that's an Anthony Robinson habit. But again, this is something I'm going to be watching for now because he does seem like that aggressive forward thinking type of player. And that's useful in some moments. And I think a moment maybe that you're about to talk about, but less useful in certain defensive moments. Yeah. So let's talk about the one where it, it is more useful. And it's when I think he, he spots the opportunity to get forward. And that can be making an overlapping run or, or looking for the long ball over the top. Or in this case, it can be with the ball at his feet. And that's what happens here is it's a good, quick series of passes, quick combinations that kind of spring him into somewhat open space. But then it's his acceleration that allows him to get around the Chelsea defense. He plays in a very smart ball in my mind, because at first I thought it was like, oh, it's just kind of a wayward pass that's aimed for Ivan Cavalier. 
Valera, the Fulham forward, but it's just behind him. And then, uh, Decordova Reed is there to get on the end of it. And I think ends up shooting wide or over or maybe both. But it, at first I thought like, Oh, is that a good pass or is that him sort of playing it behind? Watching it again, I think he definitely means it, but also five minutes before that or so, it's almost the exact same situation. And that time he does try to play it into Ivan Cavallero and it just gets cut out pretty easily at the near post. And so seeing it again and seeing that he is able to do the same thing in terms of get into a dangerous attacking position using some technical ability, but also his athleticism, but then evaluate and adjust the approach to instead of forcing it in and again and hoping for a different result, he tries something different. And really, it should have been a goal. It, it was a clear shooting opportunity. I, I know uh, XG folks never love saying like, he must have scored there. He should have scored there. But it was at the very least a clear shooting opportunity. So I think you see in in these examples that he gambles sometimes and it doesn't work. And I think sometimes he gambles too much on the defensive side. But when he is feeling it and gets forward, you can see what he offers from the attacking standpoint. Then sometimes he combines the two in that he loses the ball and tries to make up for it by going in for a tackle and gets a straight red card, which I do think was deserved. I know he was uh, very upset by it, did not feel like it should have been. But I think within the context of the way it was explained to me was I think like careless is meant to be. Uh, a foul, reckless is a yellow, dangerous is red. And this is him with studs showing, sort of like leaving his feet. He's not in control of his body. That could have been a leg breaker. So I think it's a justified red, which again, doesn't fill you with that much confidence because it means in that moment, if the emotion overtakes him, if he's just really up for it and trying to make something happen, that can sometimes work and you can sometimes create something good. Or it can mean a straight red and your team is down a man and you end up losing, not necessarily as a result, but it certainly factors in when you're playing down for an entire half. I've still got questions about Anthony Robinson. I would call myself, I guess, an yep. Anthony Robinson skeptic. And I think I've, yep. I don't think I've said it that way on the show before, but I think I've communicated that on the show before in, in my thoughts and takeaways from watching Robinson play. And I think some of that is continuing to be justified with the red card, with that that overly aggressive, unnecessarily mm-hmm. aggressive defensive moment. But then at the same time, I watched the the moment that you described when he's getting forward into the attack and he's playing that ball over into the middle of the field when he drives forward into the final third. That moment fills me with with confidence and a little bit of encouragement in how Robinson does attack. Because when I think about Anthony Robinson, and this is setting the red card and the defensive thing aside, when I think about him with the ball, I think of him trying to combine very quickly on that left side, then getting forward, taking a touch, and bending across in the air into the box. I've seen him do that over and over and over again. Sometimes it works, but it feels like a lot of the times, a lot of times it doesn't work. In, in this clip, he mm-hmm. doesn't play the ball high and lofted into the box. He plays it low, and he plays it into the path of an on-rushing attacker. And I, I think that cross has so much more value than a, a looping cross that you're hoping is going to find ahead of a teammate. I, I think the move that Anthony Robinson does to build that attack in the first place and then the final ball that he plays as well, I think those are both hugely positive things. And I appreciate seeing some versatility in his attacking game when he gets high up the field into the attack. Yeah, I, I would agree with all of that. And I would agree that like I, I am still a, a skeptic, I think more than I used to be, because initially I felt like it was maybe he was just hard done by. He wasn't getting the defensive cover when he was playing with the national team. Now I think the sample size is a little bit larger. Or I feel more comfortable in what I've seen to say I'm going to keep an eye on how he chooses when to step, chooses when to gamble, how readily he does that, how often he does that. Uh, so that's a thing I think I'll be keeping an eye on. That said, uh, if we're choosing our like strongest 23-man squad right now, 
he is in there. I don't know if he's starting because it might still be Dest on the left and somebody else on the right, but he is definitely still in that conversation for me. Joe, uh, is he in there for you as well, at least right now? Yeah, he's still in there. I don't know if I'd have him starting, like you said, but he's in that roster for sure. All right. Uh, He is in that roster. We'll see who else might be. We've got four more Americans to be discussed. But first, looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Victorinox, the makers of the original Swiss Army Knife, have been a reliable companion for life's everyday challenges, mastering functionality, innovation, iconic design, and uncompromising quality with its products. The Victorinox Swiss Army Knife provides you with all the things you don't think about until you need it. Tweezers, a screwdriver, and even a corkscrew. With the Victorinox Swiss Army Knife, you can be prepared to master everyday life. You can find Victorinox Swiss Army Knives at Dick's Sporting Goods. We're going to talk about Credible. Today's episode of the Total Soccer Show is brought to you by Credible, longtime sponsor. If you are one of the many people struggling with student loan debt, Credible can help. Credible.com is an online marketplace that brings simplicity and choice to refinancing your student loans. And why would you want to refinance your student loans, Taylor? Well, I'm going to answer that question. I wasn't really asking Please you. Please do. There is a lot That's of fair. really good reasons. By refinancing to a lower rate, you could save on interest or lower your monthly payment which means more money in your pocket. And with a shorter loan term, you could get debt-free faster. And another perk of refinancing, also positive, another perk of refinancing is that you can consolidate all your student loans in one place so you have one monthly payment, not multiple monthly payments. Yeah, who needs multiple payments? That's that's confusing. There's too many. You lose track. No, thank you. What makes Credible different is that you can get pre-qualified rates from multiple lenders. With other sites, you just get ranges of rates or ballpark estimates. Sometimes you're not even in the same ballpark. Sometimes it's not even the same sport. Such do they differ wildly. <laughs> but you won't get that with Credible. Checking rates only takes a couple of minutes and does not impact your credit. And they do not sell your data. So you will receive. So you won't receive. Excuse me. You will not. Emphasizing will not receive all kinds of spam and phone calls calls from lenders. Ultimately, this is all about having peace of mind. Carrying the weight of student debt is stressful. Consolidating your debt into one lower monthly payment can certainly ease that stress. So if you have student loan debt, don't wait to do this, folks. Visit Credible.com slash TSS and check rates now. When you refinance your student loans through Credible.com slash TSS, Credible will give you a $200 gift card. That's only through our show link, though, which is, again, Credible.com slash TSS. Refinance your student loans and start saving. Message from Credible Operations, Inc. Not available in all states. Terms and conditions apply. Visit Credible.com slash TSS for details. Thank you very much to Credible for sponsoring today's show. Joseph, thank you for talking about our next player, whomever that might be. Yeah, so the next player that I've got on my list is Josh Sargent, who started and played 92 minutes in Werder Bremen's 2-0 win over Osberg in the Bundesliga. Scored a hat-trick. Yeah. I wish. I, I really, I cannot <laughs> yeah, even express right? how much I wish that. <laughs> I, I was know. about to say, watching Werder Bremen is 
is just about the same as watching Schalke. If that uh-huh. is is context- contextual for anybody out there who's watched one or, or maybe not the other, they're pretty much equal in my mind, and I don't necessarily look forward to watching Werder Bremen. And so, Taylor, I'm longing for the day when Josh Sargent actually gets looks in a possession scheme, in the attack, when he is able to turn and get a shot off on goal. He did. Actually, let me say that. He did have a shot on goal in this game. It, it came from a sort of half chance in the box. He nearly scores. It took a good save from the opposing goalkeeper to to keep that ball out of the back of the net. But man, Taylor, all I want for Christmas, I guess this is this is past mm-hmm. now, but maybe all I want for Christmas 2021. For Valentine's Day. Valentine's Day. Perfect. <laughs> yep. Well, all I want for the next major holiday is <laughs> Josh Sargent getting consistent looks on goal. I don't even yep. care if he makes them at this point, Taylor, because uh, Verda Bremen is hard to watch. <laughs> yes. I think to your point, Bremen versus Schalke is the type of game that I could like take a look at and be like, oh, that's interesting. And I could, would like talk myself into it just enough to not really think about watching that game. I'd be like, oh, it's Hoppy versus Sargent. Maybe one of them is going to turn it around. Interesting stuff. We'll see what happens. And then within four minutes, I would either be asleep <laughs> or hating myself because, yes, they're not the most fun to watch. But I'm going to assume that you found at least a couple moments or at least one moment that maybe was interesting to you from Josh Sargent's performance. I did find a couple different things in this game. I, w- I want to say starting off, Sargent continues to do some things really well, some things that he's done well all season long or certainly pretty much every time I've watched him play for Werder Bremen this season. He continues to be really aggressive defensively. He shows smarts as far as when he runs and where he runs and how he he pressures the ball and cuts off passing angles. That stuff has been there and, and was there in this game. He also shows some impressive strength. He's grown physically, I think, throughout his time in the Bundesliga. I talked about last week how he stayed composed as a Bayern, uh, Bayer Leverkusen, excuse me, center back, followed him into midfield and, and then Sargent was able to stay upright and do something productive with his first pass. That theme continued into this game. Sargent is strong. He's disciplined defensively. He's aggressive defensively. And the area that I'm I'm really going to focus on here is he continues to show composure, to drop into midfield and connect play. And, and the moment that I want to talk about, the 48th minute, Werder Bremen go long from a goal kick, which is not a surprise if you watch Werder Bremen. They do that a lot. And, and Sargent actually does something a little bit more than just simple connecting hold-up play. So the ball gets flicked from his his strike partner onto Sargent's chest. So Sargent's partner drops into midfield a little bit and flicks the ball back to Sargent, who, who takes his first touch with his chest. And then as the ball is falling, he then hits a through ball with the outside of his right foot to play a teammate through on goal. And I want to emphasize just how rare and how rarely Werder Bremen get through on goal. These moments are so incredibly few and far between that it almost feels like they should celebrate a little bit whenever something comes up like this. And the moment from Josh Sargent and the composure from him and the skill from him to not only see the runner and to not only get his chest on the ball, but to to have the the timing and the patience to let the ball drop a little bit and hit it with the outside of his right foot to create even a half chance for Werder Bremen is certainly worth talking about. And, and for Sargent, it's only a good thing. I do love when Bremen do get their chances. The the commentators seem to reflect the rarity of that moment of like, ooh, something's actually happening. <laughs> uh, and in this case, I think you're absolutely right that though it is not like a, pr- a particularly pretty 14-pass sequence or anything like that, I think the flicked-on header from Schmidt is it, – it feels to be designed or something they've rehearsed, but I think the control and pass from Sargent, is, as you've pointed out – 
is really good because it's not just him with a person on his back or even nobody on his back, but just settling it and holding it up and waiting for runs. It's a sort of a, the ability to read, settle, turn, and then play a weighted ball through for uh, Embalm to get on the end of. I thought all of it was was like it does to me show a little bit of evolution in his game that if he's only going to have these opportunities to link play, he has to do it faster, more consistently, keep his positioning a little bit better. And so though it's only one small minute, when we're talking Werder Bremen, that one minute can stand out a little bit uh, or loom a little bit larger than it might otherwise. But I did think this one was a like significant positive. It's shades of like arguing that Bobby Wood is developing because he made an overlapping run that somebody else didn't like, maybe it's grasping at straws, but it still does feel like a positive for Josh Sargent. Since we don't always get those, it's probably worth uh, shouting it from the rooftops. I'm certainly not going to argue with anyone who says I am grasping at straws here, but to strengthen my case, maybe (laughs) slightly, I think about what Greg Berhalter (laughs) wants his number nine to do with the national team. I think about how, Berhalter often has that player drop in, not all the time. I want to be clear, not all the time. But Berhalter often has that player drop in or or certainly come back to win balls and to play forward. There's no doubt in my mind that Josh Sargent can do that role. And I don't think I could have said that statement as confidently as I can right now, three months ago or six months ago or a year ago. And that, for me, is an encouraging development that is sort of embodied by this play and this pass that he flicks into an onrushing attacker. All right. Uh, anything else to say about Josh Sargent and his wonderful uh, settle and flick? No, I think I've talked enough about Sargent and Werder <laughs> Bremen at this point, Taylor. All right, we have we have more moments to discuss when it comes to Serginho Dest, even if he only has 45 minutes of playing time. Uh, he does get 45 minutes in Barcelona's 3-2 loss in the Spanish Supercopa final. Uh, we talked about this a little bit on the weekend review, but to go in a bit more depth, he's subbed out at halftime. Due to a combination of returning from injury and fatigue, I guess Ronald Koeman didn't really want to risk him so much. And I want to spotlight that for two reasons. The first would be because uh, Oscar Mengiza comes in at halftime and I would say has a very poor game. The first goal comes about because he fails to control the ball. And when he comes under pressure, he then fouls the opponent that leads to a free kick that leads to the goal. He then is wrong side, not goal side uh, for a free kick that leads to the equalizer. And for the third goal, I would say he gets his positioning a little bit odd. He doesn't really communicate that effectively so it stood out to me that Dest's replacement comes in and is directly indirectly involved in all three goals uh, conceded so that's I guess a positive because it wasn't Dest making mistakes but in looking up why Dest was substituted there seems to be a lot of people very angry at Ronald Koeman for that choice first from a standpoint of like why was he playing if he was injured why would you start a guy who you know can't go the distance Uh, the second angry part being that that was the case for Lionel Messi who does then play 120 minutes so a little bit confused using in terms of the decision making from Ronald Koeman. But I think there was there were at least a few people mentioning that Dest doesn't contribute as much to the attack or doesn't facilitate as many attacks, certainly as many as a Jordi Alba. So going back and watching his actions from that that first half, I have to say I kind of agree. Uh, and, and I think that Dest, if you watch the first 20 minutes, it is I was sort of confused by what happened because I know he finished with like an 89% pass percentage completion rate, which is good. But in those first 20 minutes, I never saw him put a pass wrong. I didn't see him put a foot wrong. He doesn't get caught in possession. He makes smart decisions every single time. And then from the 20th minute to the end of the half, he does get a little bit sloppier. And I think that speaks maybe to that fatigue, to a little bit of the injury. He just gets... A little bit Aaron in some of his passing as the game goes on, as he's being asked to cover more and more ground. What I don't see from him, and this is the thing I want to point out, and this is the clip I sent to Joe, 
is he does have a moment in which he gets forward. Barcelona have built up sustained possession. The ball is eventually played to him out wide. It is a, a kind of quick one and two touch passing sequence that gets him in a one v one scenario. Admittedly, very far out wide, like right on the touchline, but he's 1v1 with the defender, and there's about 30 yards of space in behind. Sort of athletic at this point, have a, a, a line across. They've got numbers in there, but they're very central. And this felt to me like where maybe Barcelona fans are getting a little bit frustrated with Dest, because I think for the most part, he was content to play the ball laterally or play it back in this moment. He did play the ball forward, but it tended to be from further back. Once he gets into the attacking zone, I don't think he's as willing to try stuff. He's not taking as many risks. That might be a Ronald Koeman instruction, but I think for a player playing for Barcelona, who we know are going to attack and want their players to all be able to create, and every player should be able to do everything— I, I don't love that he doesn't try those every now and then, that we don't see those take on. He's not trying to create in 1v1 attacking scenarios. It tends to be a little bit safer. Maybe that's being too critical, but that just stood out to me as maybe that's a an issue that needs to be sort of dealt with or strengthened in his game. So that's my read on that one. Joe, am I making too much out of this one? Am I looking for neg- negativity here? I don't think you're unreasonably looking for negativity. I think this is a valid <laughs> point about Sergio Dest throughout this season. I, I'm speaking kind of slowly and more measuredly here because I know you and I have talked about in the past, specifically with Weston McKenney, but I think it applies to a number of different players that when you're moving to a big club like yeah. Juventus mm-hmm. or like Barcelona, you know, we, you and I were both very content to see players connect simple passes and do simple things and do those simple things well. But the question that we really haven't asked ourselves yet or talked about yet is, when does that trial period expire? When does that time end? And I have no idea what the answer to that question is. I don't know what the dynamics inside Barcelona's locker room are like. I don't know exactly what Ronald Koeman is asking Sergino Dest to do. What I do know, Taylor, is that Sergino Dest is a very dangerous 1v1 attacker. He is very dangerous on the dribble. And I think not utilizing that aspect of his game, not encouraging him if you're Ronald Koeman or or his teammates or whatever that hierarchy looks like, if you're not asking Sergino Dest to dribble at a defender at least a couple of times a game, I don't think you're maximizing your attack. And so I don't know whether the blame, if we want to call it that, goes on Sergino Dest for his potential lack of aggressiveness. I don't know if it goes on Barcelona and their system and their coaching staff for not asking him to do that. But I do agree that this is something notable and something to watch for down the line. Joe, I think you've you've made a very important distinction there that I think is worth keeping in mind. That, like, I can't say for sure, uh, but I, what I can confidently say is that, like, probably patience with Sergio Dest and to your question about, like, when does it not, when is it not enough anymore? When does he need to move to that next level of, like, now he's got to create, now he's got to do things himself? I'm going to guess the general viewing public is going to be more impatient for that to happen than his manager. So yeah. I think about like when Pulisic first moves to Chelsea, maybe this is a bad example, but like any player when they first move, if Des moves to Barcelona and starts the first three games, I think we're all like, oh my God, we have an American starting for Barcelona. This is incredible. It's so great. Oh, he completed that pass. Oh, he made that one cross. And after like three games, it seems to be like, well, what have you done for me lately? Why isn't he scored yet? Why isn't he taking their penalties? <laughs> Why doesn't he get a hat trick yet? Like, I think you're right that maybe expectations grow so quickly, it's easy to lose sight of what he's being asked to do. And you're right that there's a very good chance that Ronald Koeman has said, fundamentally, I don't want either of my fullbacks, but maybe it is specifically Sergio Dest. I don't want you losing.
losing possession in a situation that leaves us vulnerable to counterattack. And it is true that I think one time, I wouldn't even say he gets caught out. It's just he does commit forward. And I think it's um, Frankie de Jong loses possession. And then there's a counterattack on. Dest does well to get back. But he does have a good 30 yards to make up. And I think you probably do not want that if you're Ronald Koeman. I should note uh, that in a more positive way, I have always been a little bit more concerned about Dest's 1v1 defense. And on two different occasions in this game, he makes up a good five or ten yards to get in and gets goal side of, a, of an attacker and pokes the ball away or slows it down and blocks a cross coming in. And I thought his 1v1 defense was was very good. So I feel like we've seen progression there. I just want to see maybe a little bit of growth in that 1v1 attack. I don't disagree at all. I'd love to see Sergio Dest become more of a, a 1v1 guy and attack more often in those moments. And so really, I don't, I don't see a reason why that's not happening right now, but I do continue to, I do want to continue to be patient because yeah. I know, like you said, Taylor, our expectations and our, our desires for these players, especially the ones in Europe and the, the young talented guys coming up can, can grow too quickly. And so I'm trying to pull myself back. But yes, at the end of the day, I think you want Sergino Dest dribbling, but we might just have to see that more with the national team than we do with Barcelona. All right. I, I like this approach, Joe. So let's have measured expectations. Let's keep it calm. Now let's talk about a player who will never do anything wrong and <laughs> is the best player in the world. Shall we? Yeah, no, let's do it. Let's stay in Spain and okay, talk cool. about Yunus Musa, who, yep. who was, oh man, he was so good in this game. So I want to give context so first. <laughs> so Yunus Musa was starting in that right-sided midfield role, that same role that he's been playing all season in a 4-4-2 for manager Javi Gracia. And this game that Valencia is playing is against Alcorcon in the Copa del Rey. Alcorcon is a second division team in Spain. And so this is not a, a top tier Spanish opponent that Yunus Musa and Valencia are playing against. And, and they beat this team two to nothing and, and they didn't have a lot of trouble doing it. But I just want to express how, how athletic and how strong and fast and skilled. And we'll get to the skilled part in just a minute. But he, Yunus Musa looked levels above every single opponent on the field. And I would even say, Man, I don't know if I should say this. I would say every other player on his team in this game, Yunus Musa was winning balls in the air. He was holding off a defender on his back. He was making runs into the box and beating players that started ahead of him to get into the box. Yunus Musa was doing, he, he was checking all of the boxes physically in this game in a way that even though I've seen him before multiple times for Valencia, I've watched a lot of film on Yunus Musa, somehow I still didn't expect him to look that good. I, dude, I agree with you. And, and it's, it's it, like once a game, he seems to have one of these runs. Like I'm trying to think of a player who I can compare it to that isn't going to sound like way over the top. <laughs> yeah. But like I'll go back. I've already mentioned it before, but I'll go back to it again. Like there are, again, I want to say not saying he's the same player, not saying he's going to be the same player, but it just, some of these runs, they remind me of like early Ronaldo at Man United where he gets that kind of head up and he gets that first touch, that first little acceleration. And you can just tell in that moment, like he's going to goal. Like he's going all the way down the field. If not to goal, he is not stopping. And Yunus Musa does seem to have one of these a game where it's just like, oh, he got around that play. Oh, he got around that guy. Oh, he got around that guy. Like he's still going. And it's just, it's not always. He doesn't do it every single time. He doesn't put his head down and just drive at the defense every single time. But at least once again, he just has this like, this run 
that is just very impressive and it always showcases, I think to your point, like his, his technical ability, the tightness of his control, but then the acceleration, but the deceleration to keep the ball. He can ride the challenges. The last one I think we talked about was when he gets hip checked out of bounds and continues yep. on. He just has one of those every game and it makes him kind of appointment viewing because you can always assume that there's going to be at least one sequence of like, wow, didn't see that coming and now I'm really glad I got to see it. And I'm about to describe that moment, the the Please. moment that Musa does his thing in this game. That's that's quickly becoming the Musa thing, where like he just that. has that ridiculous run. It's in the 52nd minute. Valencia get possession on their left side, so opposite Musa, and then start switching the ball over to him on the right side. And as the ball is rolling on the ground into Musa, he already has a defender closing him down on his back. And so at this point, Musa has to do something. If he receives the ball, yeah, he probably can muscle him away. But Musa decides to be more proactive than that. And so to create a little bit of space for himself, Musa feints towards the ball as it's coming to him, baiting the defender forward, and then pulls back and lets the ball run across his body past the defender, who I think slips, actually. I think he eats it. And so at this point, Musa has green, nothing but green grass in front of him. So he drives forward down the right wing, pushes the ball past one defender, baits that same defender who had the audacity to get up from from falling on the feint. He baits that initial defender again into sliding early. And then at this point, Musa settles himself a little bit and plays a low cross into the box. And admittedly, the cross left something to be desired. It was a little bit too hard. I don't think any of his teammates could actually do anything with that ball. But if we set that aside, if you'll allow me, and we, and we just look at everything else before that, the feint, the speed, the composure, the patience, all of those things were so good in this moment, and it was 100% one of those Yunus Musa runs up that right side where it looked like just no one on the field could stop him. Yeah, I mean, if we're keeping track, I agree with that. And I would say, like, if we're keeping track of, like, the, if there was a ranking of, like, oh, this team is playing right now, I'm going to watch them because I want to see what this player does. Like, when it comes to Americans, Yunus Musa has quickly moved into that top five or so for me of, like, yes. yeah, I want to see what he's going to do on any given day against any given opponent, even if it's a second division team. You do what you can against the teams that you can. And I felt like this was a, another strong performance from him. Maybe it's just because a lot of the players I've talked about didn't have great weekends, but uh, this one stood out all the more. And uh, yeah, I just, I can't get enough of Yunus Musa. I am definitely very much on board that hype train. I'm going to be so sad if he doesn't play for the United States, Taylor. I'm going to be so sad. No, no, oh, no, right. no, no, Joe. The, we, we don't, don't say those words. things. You're we right, don't say these right. things. We don't say these things. <laughs> Not even, not even a possibility, not even an option. I did enjoy the, the commentators. I think, uh, my Spanish is limited, but I, I do believe they kept calling him North American. So I, I don't know what to make of that Good. if they just weren't it's sure he going could play for Canada. But yes, I like that they called him North American. <laughs> uh, my final player, I think the final player to be discussed, unless you have anything else to say about Yunus Musa. No, take it away, Taylor. Let's talk at Christian Pulisic. Um, there are many reasons to talk about Pulisic. I'm not going to go too much into the GQ photo shoot. Twitter has already done a good job of that one. I'm also not going to talk about their game today because I didn't watch it. I was recording another show and then recording this one. So we have not, I have not seen any of uh, Chelsea's loss to Leicester City. I did see uh, pretty much all of their victory over Fulham, that one no win in which Anthony Robinson gets a red card, in which Christian Pulisic features prominently, uh, doesn't get on the score sheet, doesn't, uh, cover himself in glory that way but I thought it was another good game from Christian Pulisic and also kind of representative of what he has become for Chelsea what he is for Chelsea Joe how much of this game were you able to see how much of Pulisic were you able to see I only saw a few moments from Pulisic in this game I didn't see the entirety of the game and so I'm excited to hear kind of your takeaways from that game 
well, it's mostly just because I, I feel like I'm going to be fairly negative about Chelsea. And I just like, I want to make sure again that this isn't, but I have no real bias against Chelsea. I feel no one, one way or the other about them. Uh, but it's, it's a lot of the issues that have sort of become familiar to Chelsea. Never mind that this is Fulham in 18th playing a man down and it took Chelsea until the 78th minute to get a somewhat fortunate winner. I believe it's a shot that's parried clear and then Mason Mount one times it in. So a good goal, but still not as though they had a comprehensive win here then to lose to Leicester and not score. And that's a big part of it is I just I see Chelsea's attack stalling with regularity that doesn't make sense for the options they have. Unless you see it from the perspective of Frank Lampard threw out a bunch of attacking options and assumed it would kind of work out, and it isn't. But Pulisic, with that said, continues to be a player who is is trying different things in different moments, and I feel like many of them are the correct decision, which just speaks volumes. It sounds backhanded. It sounds like saying, like, ah, hey, he gets it right most of the time. But when we're talking about a misfiring Chelsea team who aren't creating much, I think it stands out even more when there's a player who is making right, the right decisions and is trying different stuff and just isn't always being rewarded. So one of the clips, Joe, I know I know you uh, you spotted was uh, the Pulisic run that he sort of tries to make. And I really like this one. It's a ball that could have come from deep, but doesn't come. And I think that's part of the problem with Chelsea is there's not the immediacy they're not playing quickly enough. But in terms of Pulisic's vision, what did you make of this sequence? It's a it's a great run, not necessarily because it helps Chelsea a ton in the moment, but I'm applying this sequence to the national team, yep. to the United States men's national team, thinking about how Greg Berhalter wants to use his wingers. And one of the main ways Berhalter wants his wingers to play is he wants them to, to make those runs in behind the opposing back line, either as a number nine drops or simply just to stretch the opposing back line. And that's what Pulisic tries to do. He tries to to bend his run so he stays on side and gives his passer enough time to look up and spot that run. And the ball doesn't come to him, as we've said. The ball, the, the, the run doesn't actually do anything on this play. But the fact that he's making that run and trying to get into advanced positions behind the back line, Berhalter likes that. Berhalter wants that. And we're going to see Pulisic do that with the national team. And I'm going to like extrapolate a bit, a little bit here, but what, what I saw in this sequence is he's, he's on the like far side on the, uh, not goal side of Tete, the right wing back for Fulham. And he goes sort of around him. Uh, so he stays on side and starts going towards, uh, Aina, the left center back or right center back, excuse me, for Fulham. And you, you can see that moment that defenders will have where one is saying like, Oh, he, he's coming across. He's, he's shifting position. And the other one will give that wave like, yeah, yeah, I got him. I got him. And as soon as Aina does that, Pulisic kind of stops. And I think right there, it's already just a little bit of an awareness of like, okay, both of them, like one has said he's going to mark me, but isn't paying attention to me. One has just passed me on and no longer thinks I'm his responsibility. And that's when Pulisic stops his run and does start moving towards goal because then he's tracking the line ahead of him. He knows he's still on side and he starts to make that sort of lateral run to time it well. And I think if that ball is hit as he has that deceleration to then accelerate, I think he's in on goal. And it's the hesitation from Chelsea. It's the lack of consistency and chemistry that I think we're seeing. If that ball is played a second or two faster, if it's played at all, I think he's in. I think it helps open things up. It's just another attacking threat that Chelsea have that they aren't presently utilizing. Um, so that was that was one moment that stood out to me. Then in the second half, what, what really kept happening, in my mind at least, was his movement off the ball. 
He gets it, don't get me wrong. He's in possession, he's trying stuff, he's completing passes, he's instrumental for Chelsea, but he also just doesn't stop looking around. You can see him checking and swiveling and keeping his head on a swivel constantly, and there's just, he keeps looking for those little pockets of space, and I found myself, Joe, to your earlier point, looking at this from a Greg Berhalter U.S. Men's National Team perspective, and watching a left uh, winger, left-sided attacker, Start wide, drift central, then recycle the run, then move central again, then move out onto the right, then come back to the left. Like all of that movement, it's not just him running around, chicken with his head cut off, looking for something, hoping to create something. It's all intelligent movement to open up space, pull the defender out, find a little pocket to get the ball and keep it moving. And it just, it didn't work for Chelsea on the day, but I have to believe Greg Berhalter is watching that and seeing that sort of rotation and movement and seeing how it's going to benefit his team when you have, say, Anthony Robinson over overlapping on that left side or Serginho Dest overlapping or Weston McKinney arriving late to just get a kind of like flicked on pass from Pulisic into the middle and we've got a shooting chance. I'm very excited about that and the kind of development we've seen from Christian Pulisic with Chelsea, I think because he's had to. He has to keep trying to do stuff and I think it's helping him become a more comprehensively better player. I agree with everything you just said. Pulisic's right. movement and his... His aggressive movement to keep moving all the time. Well, let me rephrase that. Not all the time, because that I think implies that he's moving unwisely. But his willingness to move at the right times and move aggressively and to keep moving and to look for those areas that he can can tuck in and play almost as just an advanced attacking midfielder underneath a striker on that left side. And looking for moments where he can come and check to that left back who's pushed up forward on that left wing. There's so many things that Pulisic is doing In Chelsea's attack, I I wish the attack was functioning more smoothly, but the movements that he's making and the choices that he's making off the ball very much resemble, at least on a surface level, resemble what Greg Berhalter wants to do. And I think that has so much value for when Christian Pulisic eventually does get to come into camp and actually play with the men's national team. I'm glad you, I'm glad you focused in on the like moving at the right times aspect of things because, uh, I think it was John Muller, I think it was John, who, uh, did a kind of like quick video summary of, uh, Kovacic causing problems for Chelsea because he tends to move into space that another teammate is already occupying. And then suddenly there's two players there. They're both standing. That ball is not going to be passed in there because one defender neutralizes it, but also because it's just not going the way you're supposed to when it comes to the buildup in this game. At least twice, I saw Mason Mount sort of drift into a spot where he was almost standing on Pulisic's toes. And I think last season, Pulisic then goes wide. I think he tries to vacate that space. I think he accommodates. And there's just, there was one or two moments where I saw him not like refuse to move, not yell at Mason Mount, but it was just pretty clear that he was like, no, I'm in the right position. And he didn't shuffle off to the side. He kind of stood there and then Mason Mount went more central or or vacated the space. And I think, again, that sort of awareness of when to stay and when he is doing the right thing versus when he needs to open up or just keep that movement going, that awareness, that development in, in that thought process, in that decision making, to me is only a positive thing. So though there were some negatives for me, this was a, a positive performance in an otherwise negative game for Chelsea. I think I'm just as excited to see Christian Pulisic with the national team as I am to see Josh Sargent in a functioning attack, which might be with the (laughs) national team. It might not be, but I am looking forward to getting a consistent look, a sustained look for one or two or three games of of seeing Christian Pulisic play under Greg Berhalter because it feels like we just haven't gotten to see a ton of that so far. 
I, I agree with you entirely on all things. So that is eight Americans that we uh, had some thoughts on from this past weekend, plus Jordan Morris. Uh, we will be doing the same next week and every week after that, because we uh, are going to make this a regular thing of looking at the development of Americans abroad, who's doing what and why and when. Uh, but there are other shows to come this week. Joanna, you've got one coming up. Do you want to tease that one a little bit or should we leave people in suspense? No, I'll tease it. I'm talking with uh, Tifo Football and the Athletics' Alex Stewart about tactics of, well, about the tactics that a number of different top European teams are using. I'm super excited. Alex is great. So that show will be out very soon. Here we are. And then uh, we're recording this on Tuesday. I recorded a conversation with Carl Enka of The Athletic earlier today. That will probably also be out Wednesday, uh, probably late morning, I'm, I'm aiming for. We'll see. Uh, but that's mostly Manchester United. It's really, it's a really interesting conversation in my perspective, not just because it's Man United, but because they're a team that's really confusing to talk about because it's like, are they good? Are they bad? Is he good? Is he bad? Is that the right combo? Does Pogba want to be there? Is Solskjaer the right manager? And we sort of get into why they're so confusing and maybe try to answer some of what they're doing. And, and honestly, it left me feeling more positive about Manchester United, I think, because some of the negatives are maybe positive and some of the negatives are meant to be negative. And that's the teaser that I'm going to go with on that one. We've also got allocation disorder uh, this week. We may even have a listener question show as well. So lots still coming from the Total Soccer Show feed. So be sure to check that out. But until then, Joe Lowry, thank you for talking about lots of different Americans doing lots of different things. Absolutely. Anytime, Taylor. Listeners, thank you all very much for listening. And we will, as we said, talk to you again very soon. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager.